0: Hello, 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 this is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered, and today we, like CNN, are going to talk about the story behind Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. What is a concept album? Wikipedia described it in part as an album whose tracks hold a larger purpose or meaning collectively than they do individually. Wikipedia also claims there is no consensus among music critics as to the specific criteria for what a concept album is. As a result of music critics' confusion over what constitutes a concept album and their tendency to overly acknowledge people like the Beatles as the the originators of all things, we have to decide for ourselves what a concept album is. I mean, they even claim that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band is perhaps the first concept album even though the songs were unrelated anything to say that they created an already existing something I don't personally qualify to speak on the specifics of the Sgt. Pepper album because I have never heard it in its entirety and probably never will it just doesn't interest me but I will say that I don't see how a bunch of unrelated songs on a single album qualifies as a concept album just because there are no gaps in between tracks In my opinion, a concept album must have a cohesive theme, like a novel, with each track working as a chapter to help tell a story. Woody Guthrie's 1940 album, Dust Bowl Ballads, is considered to be an early concept album. It came out before the members of the Beatles were even born. Frank Sinatra, Ben Crosby, and Nat King Cole also released concept albums during their careers. Frank was even called godfather of the concept album. But the concept album that I want to talk about is the nine-song, 35-minute, 32 to 38-second opus, depending on which version you're listening to, celebrating its 50th birthday this spring. Marvin Gaye's seminal social commentary, What's Going On? Sadly, it is as relevant today as it was the day that it dropped into our consciousness on May 21st, 1971. So, the story goes that Marvin Gaye was going through troubles. You may say, when was Marvin Gaye not going through troubles? But hold on, Marvin was reeling. He was becoming more and more dissatisfied with his marriage to Anna Gordy Gaye. He was unhappy with what was going on at Motown Records, the company he'd been recording for for over the past decade. He had IRS troubles. His dependency on cocaine was growing. He was haunted by the aggressive illness and recent death of his duet partner and friend, Tammy Terrell. He was trapped with a lover man's sex symbol image that had been thrust upon him and didn't reflect the way he saw himself. Marvin Gaye was a success all around the world, but he wasn't making the kind of music that he thought he should be making. He was artistically frustrated and felt like a puppet because he wasn't being true to himself. No amount of success could cure Marvin of the fact that he was a depressive who used cocaine and other drugs to self-medicate. Not only was Marvin struggling to reconcile with his crumbling world, but the world at large was going crazy. For a super intuitive, super empathic, super sensitive like Marvin Gaye, there was only one solution. Hold up in a Detroit apartment. Marvin grabbed a handgun, pressed it to his temple, and threatened to blow himself to kingdom come. Marvin was going to end it all. Fortunately for Marvin, and for us all, Pops Gordy, his father-in-law, talked him down, got him to put the gun down. Marvin always knew that he would somehow die by the gun. He knew his soul's plan, at least in part. But it wasn't time for that, not yet. Marvin still had work to do. He pulled himself together for the time being. He attended concerts put on by the Detroit Symphony Orchestra at Orchestra Hall at the Max M. Fisher Music Center. He refused to perform live after Tammy Terrell collapsed in his arms during a performance. He had released the album That's the Way Love Is, but absolutely refused to do any kind of promotion for it. Instead, Marvin secluded himself, focusing on spiritual pursuits and ruminating on the letters that he'd received from his brother Frankie, who was fighting at Vietnam. When Marvin did venture out, it was to chase his elusive dream of becoming a professional football player. He worked out with the Eastern Michigan Eagles football team with his eye on playing for the Detroit Lions. I don't know what position he coveted, but the owner of the team advised Marvin against any attempts to go pro. He could be seriously injured, and Marvin was 30 or 31 years old at this time, which was a bit old to attempt such an undertaking. So he gave all that up, but he did maintain lifelong friendships with Lim, Barney, and Mel Farr, who both played for the Lions. Now, while all of this was going on, another Motown artist was also feeling really bothered by what was happening in the world, and specifically in America. His name was Ronaldo Obi Benson, and Obi was a member of the Motown group The Four Tops, and he was on a tour bus traveling with his group in May of 1969. He saw an occurrence of police brutality carried out against anti-war protesters in People's Park in Berkeley, California. This event was infamous enough to have a name, Bloody Thursday. Obie started asking himself some poignant questions. What's going on here? Why are kids being shipped off overseas? Why are are things so crazy? Why can't the police really protect and serve us? What is going on for real? And why is it going on? When Obie got back to Detroit, he talked to Al Cleveland, a songwriter, who had put together a song based on the talks he'd had with Obie. Obie wanted the Four Tops to record the song, but they refused. The Four Tops were about love songs, not protest songs, and they were not about to change their formula now and ruin their image with social commentary. Obie tried to make them understand that the song was about love and understanding, not protest. Nothing doing. It was too controversial for the Tops. They wanted no part of it. So one day, Obie was golfing with Marvin Gaye, and he discussed the song with him. When they got to Marvin's house, Obie played the tune for Marvin on a guitar. Marvin was excited by the song and he couldn't wait to try it on a group that he was working with called The Originals. Marvin would co-write and produce the original's best known songs, Baby I'm For Real and The Bells. Obie managed to eventually convince Marvin that he should sing it. Marvin said that he would do the song on one condition. He wanted to share in the writing credit. Obie agreed. Some people act like Obie wrote the song alone and that Marvin took the credit, but that's not true. This is what you call a collaboration, people. Marvin went to work. He changed the melody and added lyrics that were more personal. He made it richer. Obie said that Marvin added some things to the recording that were more ghetto and more natural and turned it into not just a song, but a story. And it really is like a little movie made of music, or the first chapter of a movie. On the 1st of June, 1970, sessions for the song What's Going On began at Hitsville USA Studios in Detroit. Those who participated in the session claimed that there were at least a couple of happy accidents at fate, of fate that creeped into the recording. Those participants included, of course, Marvin Gaye, the originals, Mayo Farr, Lim Barney, L.G. Stover, Kenneth Stover, Bobby Rogers, the Funk Brothers, the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, Chet Forrest, Eli Fontaine, and David Vanderpitt. Marvin did not use an outside producer for this song. He had recently experienced success producing for the originals, and so decided to break rank from Motown's assembly line approach and produce this himself. It was a very big deal to work like this at Motown, and it showed that times were changing. Marvin was not only taking his power back, but he was discovering powers that he didn't even know he had. The session was described as laid back, with marijuana smoke and scotch for everyone, helping to give the record that airy atmosphere that it has. I mentioned in my James Jamerson episode that he played his part laying flat on his back in a state of drunkenness saxophonist Eli Fontaine's opening of the record and therefore the album came about accidentally. Fontaine thought he was playing on a demo, the story says, but Marvin thought it was great to open the album that way. When Fontaine told him I was just goofing around, Marvin said, well, you goof off exquisitely. Another happy accident occurred when engineers Kenneth Sands and Steve Smith accidentally mixed two of Marvin's lead vocals together. Marvin loved that. In September of 1970, Marvin let Barry Gordy hear the song. Barry supposedly said that he hated it, dismissing it as the worst thing I ever heard in my life. In Barry Gordy's defense, he was preoccupied with plans to relocate to Los Angeles, Diana Ross's solo career, and who knows what else. And I don't know what Marvin played for him. I mean, um, I don't know what stage he was at in the development of the song. We assume that Marvin played Barry the completed, finished version, but Marvin was understandably insulted and angry and he told Barry that he was going on strike until the song was released. Barry Gordy denies that this is what happened. He claimed that he liked the song's musical feel personally, but his concerns were similar to that of The Four Tops. He didn't want to see Marvin's image, which was interwoven with the Motown brand, sullied by a political song. Barry thought that the scatting and jazz stuff in the record was old news, too. Before starting Motown, Barry Gordy had opened a record store that sold jazz records, and it was an unsuccessful venture going out of business after about a year. So Barry didn't have much confidence in the commercial possibilities of the record's jazz sensibilities. Motown's quality control department couldn't understand this record either. It was so unique and so un-Motown-like that it struck them dumb. Stevie Wonder seemed to be the only person of note who heard the song's promise. There was a Motown executive named Harry Balk, who also thought that What's Going On was a potential hit record. He urged Barry to put it out at the end of the year, but he couldn't convince him. So Harry Balk and Motown sales executive Barney Ailes, arranged to release the record behind Barry Gordy's back on January 17th, 1971. What they did was they sent out 100,000 copies of the song and then another 100,000 after those copies sold and promoted to radio stations across the country. Selling 200,000 copies in a week, it easily and quickly became Motown's fastest-selling single of that time. It raced to number one on the Hot Soul Singles chart and stayed there for five weeks and topped Cashbox's pop chart for one week. It peaked at number two on Billboard's Hot 100 where it stayed for a number of weeks. This was shockingly great news to Barry Doherty who was never happier to be wrong. Barry raced over to Marvin's house to discuss Striking While the Iron was Hot. Barry promised Marvin that he could do what he wanted with his music from now on. But he challenged Marvin to complete the album within a 30-day window. Marvin had earned the right to produce his own album. He would become notorious for being bad with deadlines in the coming years, but he was in a state of flow at this time with his creative juices in overdrive and pouring like rain. He said at the time that he did his best work when he was under pressure and depressed. Arranger David Vanderpitt is credited with the idea of connecting the musical bridge to the tracks throughout the album, which tied it all together cohesively, really making it like a novel or a movie. Vanderpitt's name is on the album cover. Smokey Robinson spent time with Marvin as he worked on his masterpiece. Marvin told his friend that God was writing this album through him. Pitchfield's Studio A was where the r- rhythm tracks and sound overdose were recorded. Studio B, or Golden World, is where strings, horns, lead, and background vocals were taken care of. Between March 1st and March 10th of 1971, 10 business days, the recording was completed with the original mix finalized on April 5th, 1971. Motown was worried that there might not be a follow-up hit song because of the way that one song goes into another. Marvin and the engineers went back into the studio to do some tweaking. What's going on hit the streets on May 21st, 1971. And just like that, there was a shift in the music industry. Now, I'm going to do uh, a second part to all of this where I will be discussing the songs on the album. The singles, the enduring impact of this great masterpiece, and things of that nature. So I'm going to end it here. I'm Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. And I will see you soon.